Chapters three and four of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter three. The News. Who that endured them shall ever forget the emotions of that spirit trying time when breathless in the mart the couriers met early and late at evening and at prime when the loud cannon or the merry chime hailed news on news as field was lost or won when hope long doubtful soared at length sublime and weary eyes awoke as day begun saw peace's broad banner rise to meet the rising sun scott the first gun of our civil war was fired, and its report was heard throughout the civilized world. "'Oh, Abel! Oh, Abel!' moaned Mrs. Force, still pale with emotion. "'What is it, my dear? Calm yourself. All that you hold nearest and dearest are in this room with you. What trouble can come upon you?' inquired her husband, rising from his couch of pain and limping toward her. She lifted the newspaper from the floor and handed it to him. Lord Enderby looked from one to the other, in perplexity. He did not like to ask a question. He waited to hear. Odalite, Wynnette, and Elva also waited in anxious suspense for their father to explain. Not so Rosemary. Her agony of anxiety burst forth at length in a cry. "'Oh, Mr. Force, is my mother dead, or what?' "'No one is dead, my child, and no special evil has come to you,' said Abel Force. Then, speaking to his expectant friends, he said, "'There is a civil war at home.' His explanation was like a bombshell dropped in their midst. All shrank away, aghast and in silence. Before any one recovered speech, the door was thrown open, and Lee burst in the room in great excitement. "'You have heard the news,' he cried, and that was his only greeting. "'Yes, we have heard the news,' gravely replied Mr. Force. "'I have come to bid you good-bye,' The mail that brought the news brought dispatches from the Navy Department ordering our ship home. We sail with the next tide. That will be in an hour. Good-bye, good-bye, he said, beside himself with mingled emotions, as he hurried from one to another, taking each in his arms for a last embrace. But, Lee, this is awfully sudden, exclaimed Mr. Force, as he wrung the young midshipman's hand. Yes, yes, awfully sudden. Odalite, oh, Odalite, he cried turning to his eldest cousin, and once betrothed last of all, as if he had reserved his very last embrace and kiss for his best beloved. Oh, my Odalite, may God love and bless and guard you. Good-bye, good-bye, my dearest dear. And Lee pressed her to his heart, and turned and dashed out of the room. But Lee, but Lee, wait! Can we not go to the ship and see you off? cried Wynnette, hurrying after him, and overtaking him at the street door. No, no, impossible, my dear. A boat is waiting to take me to the ship. I have barely time to reach her deck before she sails. There would be no time for last to use there. God bless you. Take care of Odalite. The street door banged behind Lee, and he was gone. Wynnette had flown downstairs, but she crawled up again, dragging weary steps, woe befreighted behind her. She entered the room and sat down in silent sympathy beside Odalite, who lay back in her chair, too stunned by the shock of all that had happened to weep or to moan, or even to realize the situation. Mrs. Force went and sat on the other side of her stricken daughter, took her hand, and said, "'My dear, nothing but prayer can help you now. You must pray, Odalite.' The girl pressed her mother's hand, but made no reply. Mr. Force and Lord Enderby were in close conversation on the political conflict out of which the war had arisen. 
Elva and Rosemary were standing together in the oriel window overlooking the street, too much startled by the suddenness of events to feel like talking. "'Let us hope that this trouble will soon be over,' said the Earl. "'What, be put down like one of your corn riots by the simple reading of the act?' inquired Abelforce, grimly. "'No, Enderby, I know my countrymen, north and south, and the civilized world will see a war that has never been paralleled in the history of nations.' And his words proved prophetic. After this day every mail from America was looked for in the keenest anxiety, and every mail brought the most startling and exciting news. Every schoolboy and schoolgirl is now familiar with the leading events of the war, and they need not be rehearsed here. Among news of more general interest came some of a private nature to the forces. Among the rest, letters from Mrs. Anglesia, who wrote, "'You had better pack right up and come right home. The devil is to pay and no pitch hot. The people have riz up agin one another like mad. Ned Grandier has gone into the Confederate army. Sam sticks at home.' He says war is bad for the crops, and somebody must plough and sow. William Elk has gone into the Union Army. Thanks be to goodness, old Beaver and old Barnes and old Cop are all past sixty, and too old to fight, or they'd turn fools with the rest. But as it is, they're obliged to stay home and tend to their business, and take care of Mondrier and Greenbushes. But they do say, hereabouts, as old Captain Grandier, and he over seventy years old, has turned pirate or privateer, or something of the sort, and is making war on all Uncle Sam's ships, but I can't believe it for one. And young Roland Bayard is with him, first mate, and is as deep in the mud as the captain is in the mire, and is tarred with the same brush, which I mean to say as they are both a-pirating on the high seas, or a-privateering, or whatever their deviltry is together. So they say hereabouts." Anyway, the ship is overdue for months, and neither ship, officers, nor crew has been heard of with any sort of certain sureness. And what I said in the beginning, old woman, I say in the end, as you and the old man had better pack right up and come right home. But still, if it would ill-convenience you at the present time to do so, you needn't come, nor likewise fret about your home. To be sure, the devil is let loose all over the country, but he hasn't entered into Mondrier or Greenbushes yet. Me and the three old men, Cop and Beaver and Barnes, and the old niggers, take the very best care of everything. You bet your pile on that, so do just as you think proper. This letter filled the forces with dismay, as it told them that their old friends and neighbors had risen, so to speak, in arms against each other. But the most disturbing part of the news was that which referred to old Captain Grandier and his mate, young Roland Bayard. Mr. Force, from his boyhood up to middle age, and Mrs. Force, from her first arrival in Maryland to the present time, had known the old mariner intimately, and respected him highly. They knew him, even in his seventieth year, to be strong, vigorous, fiery, and energetic. But with all their knowledge of him, they could not know, in his absence, how he would regard the Civil War, or which side he would take, if any, in the struggle. They had known young Roland Bayard from his infancy, and known him to be pure, true, brave, and heroic as his namesake but they could not judge, without him, which side he would take in the conflict. Nor could they reconcile it with their knowledge of these men, that they should run up the black flag, and wage a war after a manner little better, if any better, than piracy. But of one course they were clear, namely, that they must keep this baleful report as to Captain Grandier and Mate Bayard, from the hearing of little Rosemary Hedge. The child must not be made miserable by a mere rumor which might have no foundation in fact." 
Mrs. Force was even more affected than her husband by the doubt that hung over the fate of the kitty. She answered her housekeeper's letter, disclaiming all belief in the story that Captain Grandier and Mate Bayard had turned the kitty and her crew into pirates. And for the rest, told her that they, the Force family, should not return home for some months to come, even if then. Later on there came a letter from Miss Susanna Grandier respecting her niece. Miss Grandier wrote in a rather stilted style, after the manner of her old-fashioned romances. She wrote, All through the beautiful summer, all through the glorious autumn, all through the desolate winter of the past twelve months, we have been anticipating the exquisite happiness of beholding you again in the blooming spring, when nature rises from the grave and arrays herself in fresh and radiant apparel. But alas, evil days have fallen upon us. War stalks abroad over our beloved country, spreading ruin, misery, and desolation. Brother rises up against brother, and father against son. Friends and neighbors whose hearts and minds were once united in the closest and holiest bonds of friendship and affection are now severed and estranged in mutual hatred and malignity. In this spread of affliction and calamity, a rumor reaches us to the effect that the condition of your husband's constitution will detain you in foreign countries for a considerable time to come. If this report be truthful, and you should contemplate a further sojourn in the eastern hemisphere, I must implore you still to retain my beloved niece under your protection until you can procure some responsible escort to convey her across the ocean to the home of her childhood. I should not venture to take the liberty of preferring this request, did I not accord the most perfect credence to your protestations of attachment to our beloved child, and of enjoyment in her society— and of the invaluable benefit she herself derives from foreign travel. This, and much more to the same purpose and in the same style, wrote Miss Grandier. Mrs. Force showed this letter to Rosemary, and then had a talk with her, and found that the child was quite willing to do whatever her friends should think best. Then Mrs. Force answered the letter, condoling with Miss Grandier on the state of the country, but also expressing the pleasure she and all her family would feel in keeping little Rosemary with them, as long as the child might be permitted to stay. Still later on, letters were received from Lee. His ship was at Charleston, forming one of the blockading fleet. Late in the summer of that year the forces went again to the hot baths of Baden-Baden, for the benefit of the husband and father's health, which was giving the whole family much concern. CHAPTER Four: ROSEMARY IS STARTLED Strange to say, that while Abel Force seemed in danger of becoming a confirmed invalid, the condition of his delicate brother-in-law improved every day. He no longer required the arm of his valet to lean on, or even the help of a cane to walk with. One day his sister said to him, "'Francis, I do believe that you have been more of a hypochondriac than of a real invalid after all.' "'Elf,' he answered, "'I am inclined to suspect that you are right. Certainly most of my ailments, real or imaginary, have vanished under the influence of change, motion, and society.' As the earl continued to improve in health and strength, his sister watched him with a new interest. On another day she said to him, "'Francis, why don't you marry?' Lord Enderby started, and then he laughed. "'What has put that into your head?' he inquired. "'My anxious interest in your future, now that you have a future, brother. Would you, who are my heir presumptive, wish me to marry?' "'Indeed I would. You would be so much better and happier. Think of it, Francis.' "'My dearest, I am both too old and too young to fall in love,' laughed the earl. "'What rubbish! Too old and too young! What do you mean by such absurdity?' "'I have passed my first youth of sentiment, 
and I have not yet reached my second childhood of senility. Therefore I am both too old and too young to fall in love. Nonsense, that is not true, and even if it were, you are neither too young nor too old to marry. It is not necessary that you should fall in love. You might meet some lady, however, whom you could love, and esteem, and marry. Where should I be likely to find such a lady? My dear, I have never gone into society at all. Since my return from India, I have led a secluded life on account of my health. On account of your hypochondria, you mean. Now, Francis, you must change all that. In the beginning of the next London season, you must open your house on Westburn Terrace and entertain company. Will you do the honors, Elfrida? Of course I will, replied the lady. And you can bring out your two daughters and present them at court. Yes, I might do that. Very well. Had the earl felt disposed to look about him for a wife, he might have found a suitable one in Baden-Baden. There were many of the English nobility and gentry staying there for the benefit of the baths. Many very attractive young ladies of rank were in the matrimonial market. But, to tell the truth, the invalid earl, either from real ill health or from hypochondria, was very shy of strangers, and better liked to stroll or ride or drive with the children, as he called his nieces and their young friend than to linger in the parlors of the hotel or the pavilions of the place. In their rambles Odalite seldom joined them. She preferred to stay with her suffering father and share the labors of her mother in the sick-room. The earl and the three younger girls usually set out together. Wynnette and Elva walking on before, the earl, with little Rosemary's hand clasped in his own, followed behind. Ever since that day, now more than a year ago, when the reunited members of the Force family met at Baden-Baden and paired off, Mr. and Mrs. Force on one sofa, Odalite and Lee on another, and Wynnette and Elva on the window-seat, leaving the Earl, as it were, out in the cold, and quite forgotten, and little Rosemary also temporarily forgotten, had drawn a hassock to the side of his easy-chair and sat down, and laid her little curly black head on his knee, in silent sympathy. Ever since that day the Earl and the child had been fast friends, in her tender little heart she pitied him for his weakness and illness, just as she might have pitied any poor man in any rank of life, and she had fallen into a habit of silent sympathy with him, and of drawing her hassock to the side of his chair when they were all indoors, and of taking his hand when they were out walking. Even now, when the invalid had recovered health, strength, and spirits, these habits of the child once formed were not easily to be broken. She no longer pitied him, because she saw that he was no longer an object of pity, but she drew her hassock to his side indoors, and took his hand and walked with him outside. She seemed to think that he belonged to her, or she to him, or they to each other. One day they were sauntering slowly through the grounds of the conversation-house, when Aunt and Elva were flitting on before them. Rosemary's hand was, not on the earl's arm, but in his hand. He was so very much taller than the girl that he led her like a child. There had been a pause in their talk, when the earl gently closed his fingers over hers, and said, "'My little one, I love you very much.' "'Oh, I hope you do, and it is so kind of you,' warmly answered the child, returning the pressure of his hand, and acting toward him as she would have acted toward her uncle. "'Then you do care for me a little?' he said. "'Oh, yes, indeed. I care for you a great deal. I am very fond of you,' said Rosemary, warmly, squeezing his fingers. "'How old are you, Rosemary?' he gravely inquired. "'I shall soon be seventeen. "'Indeed!' he exclaimed, turning and looking down on her. "'Yes, indeed,' she answered positively. "'Well, you are such a quaint little old lady that I am not surprised, after all. 
You might have been fifteen, or you might have been twenty. But seventeen! That is a sweet age, the age at which the Princess Royal of England was married. Indeed! exclaimed Rosemary in her turn. Yes, indeed, he replied with a smile. And then there was silence between the two for a few minutes. The Earl was meditating. The child was uneasy and wondering why she was so. "'Little friend,' he said at last, "'you and I seem very good friends.' "'Oh, we are, and it is so very good of you to be friends with me,' she answered warmly, squeezing his fingers in her small hand. "'And we are really fond of each other.' "'Oh, very, very fond of one another, and it is so kind of you.' "'But why should you say it is kind of me, little sweet herb?' "'Oh, why, because you are so old and so grand, and I am so little every way,' she said, with another squeeze of her fingers." The earl winced, but whether at her words or her action, who could say? "'Am I so old, so very old, then, Rosemary?' he gravely inquired. "'Oh, no, no, I did not mean that. Of course, I didn't mean that you are as old as Mr. Force, who is forty-five. But I meant—I meant—I meant you are so very much grown up to be so kind as to walk and talk with a girl like me as much as you do. Well, my dear, do you not like to have me walk and talk with you?' "'Oh, yes, indeed, indeed I do.' "'Oh, you know I do,' she answered fervently. Again the earl was silent for a few moments, and then, drawing her small hand into the bend of his arm, he asked, "'Rosemary, would you like that you and I should walk and talk together every day for the rest of our lives?' She turned and looked up into his face, as if she wished to read his meaning. He smiled into her upraised eyes. "'Are you in earnest?' she inquired. "'Perfectly, Rosemary. Do you think I would jest with you on such a subject?' "'No, but I thought you knew me so well that you would know without asking "'that I would love dearly to walk and talk with you every day, "'all our lives long, if we could. "'But how could we? "'Some of these days I shall go back to Maryland, "'and then we shall part and never meet again. "'Oh, I hate to think that we shall never meet again. "'You do seem so near to me, so very near to me, "'as if you were my own, my very own. "'Oh, sir, I beg your pardon. "'That was very presumptuous. "'I ought to have said—' I ought to have said. She stopped and reddened. What, my child, you have said nothing wrong or untrue. What do you think you ought to have said? The earl inquired, in a caressing tone. I think I should have said that I feel so near to you, that I feel as if I were your own, your very own. It was too, too arrogant in me to say that I feel as if you belonged to me. I should have said, as if I belonged to you, she explained. And then she laughed a little, as in ridicule of her own little ridiculous self. His hand tightened on hers as he replied, "'Suppose we compromise the question, and say that we belong to each other.' "'Yes, that is it, and you are so good.' "'And you really wish that we two should walk and talk together every day for the rest of our lives?' "'Oh, yes, if it could be so.' "'Rosemary,' he said very gravely, as he still held and pressed her hand, "'there is but one way in which it could be so.' He paused, and she looked up. How long he paused before he could venture to startle the child by his next words. "'By marriage. Rosemary, dear, will you marry me?' She turned pale, but did not withdraw her astonished eyes from his face. "'What do you say, little friend?' inquired the suitor. "'Oh, oh, oh,' was what she said. "'Does that mean yes or no, Rosemary?' She did not answer. "'You do not like me well enough to marry me, then, Rosemary?' "'Oh, yes, I do. Indeed, indeed I do. I would marry you in a minute. But, 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 but what? I am engaged.'" End of chapter 4